Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Dhananjay Jagannathan. With us today is Julia Annis, Regents Professor of Philosophy at the University of Arizona. And she is here to discuss virtue ethics. Julia Annis, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I guess we could just begin by talking about what virtues are. What, are, like, what is a virtue and what are some examples of this or that virtue? Well, I think ordinarily a virtue is the way you are as a matter of character or the way you characteristically are. Uh, when psychologists study them, they call them traits, and philosophers are more likely to call them dispositions. So it's the way you are which is reliable, but it doesn't mean reliable in that you do it a lot. Uh, I think it's easier to take some examples. I think we all think honesty is a virtue, bravery is a virtue, compassion is a virtue. And you're not compassionate just because you do a compassionate thing on one occasion or even because you might do it reliably. It's a matter of doing it for the right reasons and also do having the right feelings about it. Somebody who's compassionate but regards it as a drag isn't yet compassionate. So there are a number of factors that go into what a virtue is, but I think it's pretty recognisable what some virtues are at any rate. Could you tell us something about what virtue ethics is and whether there are other approaches that also talk about virtue? Well, there are different sorts of virtue ethics because there are different conceptions of what a virtue is once you start getting theoretical about it. But any sort of virtue ethics is an approach to ethics in which it's central what sort of person you are. Other approaches to ethics often focus more directly on actions, And until recently, there was a tendency for theories of ethics to take the form of giving you answers to ethical problems. So very often you'd start with what are difficult ethical problems and then see how you produce answers to that. And in fact, one approach to ethics said, what is an ethical theory? Well, we know what ethical problems are and an ethical theory is what gives you the answers to them. Now, virtue ethics starts more from a first personal perspective, that each of us has a life because we're living a life and each of us already, by the time we think about it, has certain virtues and certain vices. And so we start thinking about what it is to have these traits or dispositions as a matter of character. And so the question of what to do comes out of the issue of what sort of person to be. Though I should say at this point, this doesn't mean in philosophical terms that it's a theory in which character is foundational, as we say, and in which you can simply then read off what to do in terms of what character would be. How to act and the sort of person you are uh, are explained in terms of one another. And in fact, virtue ethics doesn't think that there's any one concept in ethics that's foundational, such that you can start from that, understand it, and everything else in the theory falls out of that. Virtue ethics typically has a more holistic form, by which we mean 
all the elements in it are interdependent and so there's no one place where you can start and that's the foundation and if you've got that you've simply then just got to derive all the rest. Okay, so uh, whereas maybe certain other approaches to ethics look at what's the difference between a right and a wrong action? What is it to do good versus to do bad? Virtue ethics looks at what is it to be a good person or to exhibit the right character traits? Can those two things come apart? I mean, is it possible to be a virtuous person but do lots of what would otherwise be considered bad things? I think that would be pretty unlikely. You're not likely to be able to carry it off for any length of time. I think uh, as for what the person would do, if you're an honest person, you'll do honest actions, and if you're a compassionate person, you'll do compassionate actions. That can sound completely trivial, but it isn't really trivial. Virtue ethics has reintroduced the idea of what Rosalind Hursthaus, who's one of the people most influential in reintroducing virtue ethics to academic philosophy and making it very influential, she calls them the virtue rules. And she points out, when we learn how to do the right thing, we usually aren't told, do the right thing, because that's no help at all until we know what it is to do the right thing. And if we say, well, how do I do the right thing? We're told, do the honest thing do the compassionate thing. And that isn't actually trivial, because by the time we're old enough to understand what we're being told to do, we already know a lot about what honesty is and what compassion is. We learn the virtues initially by being brought up. That's not the end of the story, but it's the beginning of the story. So that by the time we think about what is right to do and what is wrong to do, we have a lot of knowledge already about what's honest to do, what's brave to do. We recognise what's brave and what's cowardly. So in many ways, the virtues are what I think of as the specifications of the right thing to do. And I think in virtue ethics, the notion of the right thing to do doesn't play much role at all because it doesn't guide you to do anything in particular. It's like being told to play the piano by saying, well, strike the right notes in the right combination at the right tempo. That's right, it's correct, it's not wrong, but it's no help in telling you what to do. So we have a lot of information about what it is to act virtuously by the time we think about it. And we also know that it's possible to do the honest thing for the wrong reason, and we know that sometimes we do that ourselves. So we know that it's not possible to infer from what somebody does whether it's actually done from a virtue or not very often. We recognise that there's a lot of slippage in the way we talk about other people and in the way we think about our own actions. But for all that, I think it would be very unlikely that there could be that sort of total slippage somebody who has the wrong reasons for acting bravely, it's very unlikely that in difficult situations they would, in fact, discern what the brave thing is to do. If you don't have the right reasons and if you don't um, have the right motivations for acting on them, you very often won't actually make the right decisions. Okay, so the point of thinking of ethics then in terms of character traits rather than in terms of right and wrong actions, or anyway, part of the point might be that this way of thinking about ethics more accurately reflects the way we're taught to behave. Does this mean that as virtue ethicists, all we study is the, the set of values that we're brought up into culturally and that there's sort of no room for critiquing them? No, it doesn't. Some critics of virtue ethics have made that charge. But I think that would be to assume that we all stay children. <laughs> children learn how to behave by having role models with their par- in their parents, their schools, the culture around them. But this is the point at which I think it's important to notice that the structure of learning a virtue is rather like the structure of learning a practical skill. 
you have to see how somebody else does it and learn from how they do it. It's like learning to play the piano or an instrument or learning a skill, a physical skill. But obviously when you learn to do that, you don't just copy what the other person does completely by rote and end up with a routine. That wouldn't be learning the skill, that would be just learning to mimic what the other person does. Learning the skill means that at a certain point it becomes your skill. And that can be broken down into various things. You learn to do it for yourself, you learn to understand what the point is, and you learn to improve. So one example I use, if you wanted to play the piano like a famous piano player like Alfred Brendel, learning to play like Alfred Brendel wouldn't be to copy the way he plays every note and play pieces that he plays. That wouldn't be learning to play the way he plays. To learn to play the way he plays is to learn to play your own way, to understand what he does and to make it your own and to improve. And I think the same is true of virtues, that we have to start from where we are, which is that by the time we think about it, we already have been brought up, we already have acquired certain virtues. But we don't have them as virtues rather than just mere habits, unless we make them our own dispositions. And that means that we learn for ourselves and we reflect. People very often reflect and alter the content in that way of virtues that they've been taught. They may think virtue isn't so, uh, bravery for example, isn't so much a matter of doing what soldiers do, it might be more a matter of doing what people do who are faced with long-term problems, people who have long-term physical problems, people who are in hospital for long periods. So we might come to think of bravery more in terms of enduring and being positive about problems that you have from day to day rather than doing the sorts of things action heroes in cinemas do. And that's just one example. If you've been brought up by your parents to be honest about money but not honest about truth, you may think, well, honesty about truth matters too. So we're all trying all the time to acquire virtues just as we live because we're always being faced with different situations just as we grow up and age. And so all of us willy-nilly go beyond what we've been taught and how we've been brought up. And it's part of our own ethical development to continue to learn to be virtuous. You mentioned a couple of times now that we can think about virtues like skills, or at least we can draw some comparisons between the two, especially in, in the way that we learn them. Skills have been studied in interesting ways by empirical sciences, especially neuroscience. Could you say something about whether the virtues could be studied in the same way? Yes, that's very interesting. It's difficult, of course, to operationalize virtue in any way that psychologists can study because there's so many different elements and because virtue is a long-term thing. So you can't bring somebody into a lab and test them once and see whether they're virtuous because it's a trait. And I don't know about neuroscience, but certainly some psychologists who've studied moral development have also studied the way in which the development of virtue is like the acquisition of practical skills, which has been studied by psychologists for some time. And in particular, Darsha Narvaez and Dan Lapsley at the University of Notre Dame have been studying moral development and the application to that of practical skills. In fact, there's a conference that we hope to organize sometime next year, bringing together psychologists and philosophers on the development of virtue and we hope that there will be some interdisciplinary insights there. So I think we can certainly study some aspects of it scientifically and in particular psychologists have done a lot towards breaking down the acquisition of practical skills and what goes on and I think that's going to be tremendously helpful for studying virtue development. Though as I say I don't know how we're going to operationalize 
the education for virtue in any very close way because you'd have to track somebody for years to see whether they were truly virtuous and we can't do that yet. Also, presumably, there's the question about, like, how would you measure whether somebody is doing something for the right reason? Yes, that is the problem, right. And that's why a lot of people, in particular, there's some philosophers who think that psychologists who defend something called situationism have come to results that argue badly for virtue ethics. But what they can study is how people act, and of course that's far from the whole of what it is to have a virtue. So you can show that sometimes people uh, are, don't act in ways that are what's called cross-situationally consistent. They'll be caring in one situation but not in another. But that's only part of what it is to have a virtue, to act in one way rather than another. There has to be a great deal more before we can say we've really studied a virtue scientifically. And certainly the problem that the reasons for which somebody acts may not be obvious and may not even be obvious to them at the time means that it is very difficult to operationalize virtue in its full understanding. So one question that comes to mind about this analogy to skills like playing the piano, for example, is, well, just how far the analogy goes. So, I mean, is it possible to go into a practice room for eight hours a day and practice compassion or to be a compassion virtuoso, uh, you know, the Paganini of compassion? No, of course not, but... It's possible to choose to practice compassion or not. And we do that all the time when we decide that we will or won't spend time acting in certain areas. Will we or not give our money or, tellingly, our time to help services that help the homeless or something like that? We can actually do that or not. Or we can actually look at our budget and see if we could give more money to various charities or something or not. And we do that or we make that sort of decision all the time. Very often it's in a family situation. Shall we or shall we not have old Aunt Edna to come and live with us? Um, <laughs> that's the sort of decision we make about practicing compassion. It's not a matter of going into a room for eight hours a day. It's more a matter of uh, we avoid situations in which you might have to do that. <laughs> just as we choose whether to play the piano or not. It seems like one of the advantages of thinking about ethics this way is that it responds to a lot of our common sense thinking Mm -hmm. about how we want to live our lives and how we want to teach our Mm -hmm. children to be. Could you say something about that uh, as far as it relates to the philosophical study of virtue? Yes. Nowadays, virtue ethics tends to be taught along with other academic forms of ethics in universities. On the other hand, I think it's significant that there's been a very large trickle-down to the popular level of the concepts of virtue and indeed the concept of happiness, which we might get back to. When Aristotle wrote his ethics, it was simply obvious, it was common sense, that each of us cares about our own life and we want to live that life well. And so for him, philosophy comes in by helping us to do something better that we're already doing. And he says... We are learning about virtue not just in order to know about it, but in order to become better people. And that just goes without saying. And nowadays, I think more and more people are recovering that idea, though they're recovering it at the popular level. And virtue ethics as a form of ethics is still more of an academic 
form of ethics. But as I say, I do think it's significant that there's more and more, if you go into bookstores, if you look at the self-help section, the word virtue will turn up in the title. Or the notion of becoming a good person or something like that, the virtues themselves will figure. People are often still uncomfortable with the word virtue because it sounds odd, they don't know how to place it. But they have no trouble in thinking the most important thing in life is the sort of person you are or the sort of character you have or whether you're um, brave or compassionate or whatever, that those concepts have never gone out of popular circulation. Something that some of the ancient virtue ethicists thought was that being a virtuous person, living a virtuous life was enough to be happy. And that seems like an idea that isn't widely shared today. Could you say something about that? Well, indeed, if you suggest to people that virtue is sufficient for happiness or even necessary, it sounds extreme because even if it's necessary, that means wicked people aren't really happy. And ever since the 19th century, we've got used to a concept of happiness, which means roughly feeling good, either feeling good at the time or feeling good about your life as a whole. And again, there's been a big resurgence at the popular level in best-selling books about happiness. You can find happiness, it sometimes seems, in every other title in the self-help section. But there's often a lot of confusion there because they use this conception of happiness, which means that you feel good about yourself or have a positive attitude to yourself. But often what they're talking about isn't actually that. It's more like the ancient conception of living a life with which you're satisfied, even if you don't feel good. Because really, the ancient idea that virtue is either necessary or sufficient for happiness isn't anything weirder or stronger than the idea What matters for living a life with which you feel satisfied and have a positive attitude to? It's not the stuff in your life. It's not whether you have money or even whether you have a job that you enjoy doing or whether your family makes you proud or lets you down or something like that. It's the way you deal with these things. And really the life of virtue is the life in which you deal with the things in your life. It's, as I put it, way I put it, it's the way you live your life as opposed to the circumstances of your life. And the idea that virtue is sufficient for happiness is the idea, which admittedly is a strong one. You can be happy whatever the circumstances of your life, because however bad the circumstances of your life, there's always a difference between dealing with them badly and dealing with them well. And in the ancient world, the Stoics said virtue is sufficient for happiness, so an emperor like Marcus Aurelius can live happily or not, a slave or ex-slave like Epictetus can live happily or not, because it's always up to you to deal with the circumstances of your life, well or badly. And a lot of people resonate more to that idea than they know, or at least they resonate more to the idea that it's necessary to deal with your life well, that just having money or two cars or a big house and so on, those things don't make you happy. Rather, it's the place you give them in your life that makes you happy or not. So money doesn't give itself the place in your life that it has. You give money the place in your life that it has. And a lot of people, and even self-help books, actually are putting forward this idea, at least part of the time, although we so strongly still have this strand of happiness that in our minds that it's got to involve feeling good, that sometimes the results are often quite confused, I think. Because obviously, dealing well with the circumstances of your life, even if they're very bad, won't necessarily make you feel great or you know, feel perky in an extrovert kind of way. <laughs> so it seems like one way that some perhaps hedonistic or utilitarian philosophers have thought about happiness is in terms of feeling good. But 
there are more sophisticated approaches, mm-hmm. like thinking about happiness in terms of getting what we want, where that includes maybe long-term commitments and doesn't just involve feeling pleasure. Well, I think the basic problem with the desire satisfaction account is that it's what I call static. You want certain things and then you get them and then you've got them. So if you want a big house in the suburbs and you get it, then you've got it. What then? There's got to be some other desire that you have that gets you to do anything to fulfill it. So I think what's fundamentally wrong about the desire fulfillment account of happiness is it's not dynamic. That happiness is how we live our lives in a dynamic kind of way. The desire satisfaction account of happiness suggests that if we got what we want, it's done, we've got it. But that obviously isn't, doesn't make us happy because we've got to get up the next day and go on living. What is to propel us forward? I think that's what's basically wrong with hedonistic accounts too. However sophisticated their account of pleasure, there's something you want that gives you pleasure and then you get it, and then what? Whereas the account of happiness which involves living your life as a whole is always dynamic. We're always living our lives. We've, you know, it makes it seem hard work perhaps. We're never done. You know, we've never got the prize and then we can go home. The prize is the way we're living now. And there's got to be something about that that propels us forward to make life meaningful. Otherwise, we're just relying on having desires to keep us going or our life would become completely boring and there'd be no reason to go on with it. So the problem then with thinking of happiness as getting whatever it is that I want is once I've gotten what I want, then does that mean like, oh, I'm now permanently happy or now I'm no longer happy because I don't want anything anymore? And that notion of happiness fails to capture the fact that living a fulfilling life is an ongoing effort. But nonetheless, it does seem that living a fulfilling life does involve sort of setting goals for oneself. So does this mean that happiness is ultimately not about the setting of goals, or does it mean that the setting of goals is only just sort of a part of the act of living a fulfilling life? Well, I would would answer that by saying I think there's a big difference between setting goals and having desires. That we may not notice what the problem is with the desire satisfaction account, because we always do have desires. But if you say, what would it be if our desires happened all to be satisfied, then you, you get the problem about what would propel us forward. But a goal or aim is something we set for ourselves. So you can go on always setting yourself goals. And fulfilling those goals is something that you're still doing as you're going on living. And, and you're still concerned with whether you're achieving your goals well or badly whether you're living a good life that's fulfilling and satisfying or whether you're not. And that's something you're doing. I think, interestingly, the ancient conception of happiness always included the idea that it's active, it's something you're doing. And that's something that's lacking from all the desire satisfaction and hedonistic accounts of happiness, that that idea that happiness is active, it's the way you're living, things you're doing, just sort of dropped out from Bentham onwards. And you find it in Mill, but then... To the extent you do, he's not really a hedonist. <laughs> he's reverting back to something more like the Aristotelian account of happiness. There are lots of different kinds of virtue ethics, mm-hmm. some of them based on more modern philosophers like Hume and Nietzsche. But so many of the people writing about virtue ethics today draw on Plato, Aristotle, and the mm-hmm. Stoics. And in the ancient Greek world, virtue ethics was really the norm. What happened? Well, I think the 19th century happened. (laughs) I don't think there's a single answer you can give. But I think until the end of the 18th century, there was a general assumption 
that ethics is about virtue and happiness. And, of course, you get very different conceptions of what virtue and happiness are. In the Middle Ages, of course, you find versions that uh, give it a religious content. But in the 18th century, something happens, or, as I say, a lot of things happen. And we lose the idea of happiness as the fulfilling and satisfying living of a life. And it gets to be what Bentham says it is. It's just pleasure and pain, and pleasure and pain is just the way you feel. I think some of the reason that continued is that that's a convenient conception that can be operationalized in various social sciences. And you find in the social sciences that conception of happiness has had a long life and is in some places still alive. And obviously you can study it scientifically, whereas the ancient conception of happiness is hard to operationalize and study scientifically. But I don't think that can be the only reason. And I think really sociologists of thought have to work out exactly why that happened. And similarly, why has virtue and virtue ethics had a big renaissance? Again, I don't think there can be just one reason. I think on the level of academic ethics, the reason is after the 40s and 50s, and indeed into the 60s when I was a graduate student, ethics had just become, on the one hand, the constant battles between a form of utilitarianism and a form of what's called deontology. That's a rival theory that privileges the idea of actions being right or wrong without a great deal of theory behind it. And those had just got very boring because it had just become obvious what all the moves were and nobody could think of anything very original to do except in details. And virtue ethics came along as a radical new way of doing things, looking at character and looking at what it is to be a good person rather than a bad person. And that really, I think, struck a note with people because I don't think that way of looking at ethics has ever gone out of use, as it were, in terms of what people do. It had certainly fallen out of academic ethics. It had become sub-theoretical, but it had never actually gone away. And once people started noticing it, it became established. And indeed, modern academic ethics has improved all across the board. That is, utilitarianism has become a great deal more sophisticated. Deontology is still going, but people have got much more interested in Kantian ethics, which is a much richer form of ethics. And indeed, Kant has his own form of virtue ethics in the theory. And so even theories like consequentialism and Kantianism, which have carried on for many years in their own right, have tried to incorporate aspects of virtue in their new and much more rich and sophisticated forms. But I don't think there's a single answer that can be given to your question. At least not yet. Doubtless we'll find one. Is virtue ethics an alternative to these different approaches that we've mentioned? Um, deontological ethics, utilitarianism. Or is it really just a slightly different set of questions, a slightly different subject matter? What it is to exemplify good character rather than what it is to do the right thing versus do the wrong thing? Well, um, being concerned with character can always be incorporated into other theories. Uh, Other theories have done that. So I think it's rare now to find an ethical theory that completely ignores character and virtue. But something called virtue ethics, I think, is an alternative approach because it says what matters to us when we're interested in ethics is, on the one hand, character, and on the other hand, happiness. That is, the idea of a life well lived, that these are the basic ideas that we're interested in and that concern with the right thing to do finds its place within this connection of concepts. So it rejects the priorities that other theories have, I think, 
Uh, it doesn't put the same stress on doing the right thing. And virtue ethics certainly rejects the idea that a theory could tell you what to do. Virtue ethics thinks that your concern is to become a better person. That's what we're all trying to do, hopefully, most of us. <laughs> and that theory helps you to do that better, but it's helping you to do something better that you're doing already. And it doesn't give you a ready-made way of working out what the right thing to do is. That's not something we actually want. We don't want to be told what to do. Our parents told us what to do when we were children, and then we grew up and we worked out how to be a good person, and then we would figure out the virtuous thing to do on each occasion, the brave thing, the compassionate thing, or whatever. We don't want somebody else or some theory to tell us what to do. That would be abdicating something that we're doing for ourselves. What would it be exactly to disagree with what we've said so far? Because it seems like a lot of what we've been saying, well, you know, the purpose of life is to live a fulfilling life and so forth. It seems like a lot of what we've been saying is very much in line with common sense, and probably most of us at some level already think these things. So where's the controversy in virtue ethics? <laughs> well, I think there's two places there might be controversy. One is there's controversy with other forms of ethics. And some people think that virtue ethics is, so to speak, an underachiever because they have higher theoretical ambitions for ethics. And sometimes this is put in the form of saying, what is an ethical theory? And people say, well, what is a theory? And then they look for their model of what a good theory is outside ethics. And very often they look to science and say, well, a good theory is one which is parsimonious with its initial starting points and fruitful in terms of predictions and so on. And by those standards, virtue ethics doesn't come out as a very impressive theory. So I think there's controversy about whether virtue ethics is doing what uh, we have ambitions for by way of an ethical theory. And one of part of the appeal of virtue ethics, I think, is to say that's not at all clearly the right way to go for ethics. Why should ethics think that what's important is to build up a theory which is like in its structure theories in other areas? Why should ethics be like other areas? Ethics is different from other areas. And indeed, to mention Aristotle, Aristotle thinks that. He thinks in ethics you use the appropriate method. You don't use the method that's appropriate in mathematics or logic. He doesn't mention logic, but then Aristotle invented logic, so he knew what an impressive theory looked like. But he didn't think that's what you need in ethics. Ethics is practical, and so it's better to avoid being over-ambitious for what an ethical theory can do. And within virtue ethics, is virtue ethics under-ambitious in what it can do for the individual? Well, no, I don't think so, because you could say we're all thinking anyway in terms of whether we have the right kind of character and we're living the right kind of life. But often, we don't think about it enough. We don't reflect about it. And philosophy makes us reflect about it. And that's far from nothing. It's, in fact, probably what's the most important thing for many people. Because many people do go through life not questioning what they were taught to consider good character by their parents or their school, or else they get too influenced by the culture to think that what matters is status or money or beauty, that you know, you're not worth much unless you're beautiful and glamorous. That's the message we get from a lot of the culture. And a lot of people, a lot of us, just absorb it a lot of the time. So it's always important for us to be recalled to reflecting for ourselves on what's important in our life and why, and whether 
the stuff in our life is, you know, the concern with money and ambition and so on, is occupying places in our lives that when we reflect, we don't go along with. We may reflect and find we have the wrong priorities. So I don't think virtue ethics is underambitious on either school. But of course, this is a matter of controversy. <laughs> it seems like an anxiety of some moral theories is to provide an answer to the moral skeptic, the person who thinks, say, that morality is some kind of game or a form of indoctrination and it isn't grounded in anything real. What does virtue ethics have to say to that imagined person? Not much. Uh, Again, it's a point of saying this is an inappropriate starting point. A lot of ethics starts from saying, what do you say to the person who thinks ethics is all a scam and so on? And I think that's a misguided place to start because that person is never going to be persuaded. Again, I would appeal to what Rosalind Hursthouse says in this, in her book on virtue ethics. She pointed out, you have to start with the right starting points. And one useful starting point is, when you have children, how do you want to bring them up? Do you seriously think that either you might as well bring them up to be cowardly and sly and devious as to be brave and honest and straightforward? No, most people think there would be something very strange about that. And it's not just because you want them to be honest to you, it's because you think they'll live better lives being honest and straightforward than being cowardly and devious. So many, most people do not start from a point of view which they could take seriously the thought. Either it would be just as well for me if I were cowardly and devious and sly as I would if I were brave and straightforward, or... Society could get on just as well or could manage if everybody were cowardly and devious and sly as we could, <laughs> if everybody were brave and straightforward. We just don't take those as serious starting points. Now, many philosophers say that's not taking the challenge seriously. So this is a, a radical difference about where it's appropriate to start. But it reflects the point, I think, that virtue ethics is less academic than some philosophical theories, that you don't have to start by meeting some purely theoretical challenge. That's not where it's appropriate to start. It's appropriate to start thinking about the way we think. Do you think that there's like a practical upshot to uh, thinking of ethics in this way? So you sort of contrasted virtue ethics with maybe some more quote-unquote academic pursuits. You know, now that, now that I've learned about this new way of thinking about how to live my life and how to guide my behavior, um, what will that lead to in terms of how I actually conduct myself? Well, what actions it will result in will depend on who you are and how you're positioned. In a doctor, the results will be different from in a soldier, for example. So virtue ethics will be about how you do what you do, rather than saying, drop everything and be virtuous. I mean, that would be completely empty. But I think it's interesting, first of all, that at the pop- what I'm calling the popular level, self-help books and so on, people talk much more about the virtues. That's not a result of academic ethical philosophy, I think, but it's interesting. It's a big shift in the culture. And again, I don't have an answer as to why that's come about. But also I think it's interesting that virtue ethics plays quite a big role in applied ethics. That if you look at books on applied ethics or look at the huge number of courses in applied ethics that have sprung up, it's clearly been found a fruitful approach in legal ethics, engineering ethics, bioethics, all these different approaches of applied ethics. It's clearly been found very applicable by the people who do applied ethics. 
Why do you think that might be? Is it because of what we talked about earlier, namely the fact that the virtues are something that you can try to teach to your children? Mm-hmm. Or you know, why is it that virtue ethics is easier to apply? I don't know that I have a good general answer to that, but you could say, what virtues does a doctor need? Well, I don't think a doctor needs a special set of doctor virtues, though you can put it that way if you like, it's harmless. Just that a doctor needs the virtues of patience, application, keeping going with things, and tact, and so on. A doctor will need to foreground certain virtues more than others. And this changes. Doctors used not to have to put great weight on being patient and tactful and explaining things to patients. You know, the doctor was the person in a white coat who came over and uh, did certain things to parts of you and then went away. And now there's much more premium on doctors uh, communicating with patients, making, you know, explaining, that sort of thing. So doctors will need certain virtues now more than others. But also, within a certain context of action, like what doctors have to do, you have to specify how the various virtues can be applied. And I think professionals in various areas find that not easy to do, but they find that a natural thing to do. How do I, in being a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, apply this particular virtue? And I think people seem to find that something that they do and useful in thinking how to make difficult decisions more than just saying, let's wheel in an ethical theory and see what the result is from the ethical theory and then try and apply it. (laughs) It seems like one of the reasons that doctors have been encouraged to be more patient and tactful and compassionate and explain things to their patients is that it leads to better patient outcomes. We might think that's a fine thing in medicine, but take a comparison to the business case. How do we convince business people that they should be honest and scrupulous (laughs) even when it doesn't benefit their particular business? Well, I don't teach business ethics, so I don't have a very snappy answer to that. But I think business ethics is about the fact that business is about more than just competition. Um, I've had to sit in on business ethics courses for the graduate school when graduates are teaching sections on business ethics because we have to do reports. And you do get students who sometimes say, oh, business ethics is a waste of time because it's all dog-eat-dog out there and we're all here to maximise money and make as much money as possible. And you think, well, that's what you think when you were 18, because you think you're going to go out and be Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. But actually, you're probably going to be a middle manager. Uh, And most of the people in this class are going to be middle managers. And being a ruthless competitor is not going to be a good way of being a middle manager. So in business, you are going to need some of the virtues of cooperation and not just the virtues of competition. I can't say more than that. Uh, The other thing is business ethics isn't a silver bullet that makes business people behave well. I don't think the fact that business people often behave badly is necessarily a defect in business ethics or in the fact that they haven't learned business ethics. But I think business ethics is about more than just competition and doing other people down. (laughs) Even though 18-year-olds don't seem to think that. (laughs) Julia Ennis? Thank you for patiently and tactfully explaining virtue ethics to us. (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.